The entire team at Emsolation want to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We want to recognise that we are recording and telling our stories on the stolen land of our country's first storytellers. We wish to pay our respects to all Wurundjeri elders and ancestors and to extend that respect to any First Nations peoples who listen to Emsolation. We recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's continued connection to the land and waters of this country and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Always was, always will be. Hold on to your ankles, Australia. I'm coming in dry. And Michael Lucas. All dark space (laughs) when nude. Sign me up. Go directly there. This is Emsolation. I'm not getting strong unicorn of death, psychiatric, psychic vibes. The psychic and the psychiatric can be very closely aligned when it comes to the unicorn of death. You're in Emsolation. Well, good morning or good afternoon or good whenever you're listening to this, Emsolators. I am obviously not M, as you probably deduced by now. It's Michael that's running this introduction of, uh, let's call it a collector's edition of Emsolation. <laughs> and I'm obviously M's friend and a screenwriter and a producer and a sometimes podcaster and a gay who hasn't given up. And M. Rossiano, as you all know, is a singer, a stand-up a writer, a neurodivergent magic brain, and together we uh, do this podcast every week. And sometimes there's a Tuesday edition too, but generally we're here on the Thursday. Except for this week, obviously, I am kicking off. And look, if you followed him on social media, you'd be somewhat aware of this, but it has been a rough old week in the life of M. Rossiano in the wake of a... Uh, uh, an innocent comment she made online about a sensory room at Marvel Stadium for the Harry Styles concert. She was applauding them. And let's just say it was picked up by the press and then there was a bit of a firestorm and there was criticism and it turned into a whole discussion. And when I say discussion, that's a really polite word. It it turned into a lot of people weighing in on uh, M's autism, basically, and whether or not uh, it was just, it was authentic or something she was doing because it was trendy. It was a really um, unsettling and disturbing conversation, particularly for Em, and to give you an insight into how bad it was, like we attempted to go see a musical, she just couldn't get through it. I mean, do you know how bad she has to be for that to happen? Furthermore, I sent her footage of Harry Styles singing Daryl Braithwaite's Horses, no response. Like she was, she's been low. So she felt like for this podcast... We could come in uh, and talk about not so much not so much the firestorm around it, but just the issues that it brought up. Because we haven't really spoken that much about uh, M's autism. We've spoken a fair bit about her ADHD. The autism diagnosis came later, and spoiler alert: I was actually part of that diagnosis. And then, as an autistic woman in particular, I mean all autistic people, but women in particular, there's a lot of issues uh, that that they face in terms of how it presents and how uh, high-functioning, in quotation marks, they seem and the problems that causes. So we thought we could unpack it all. That's what we're about to do now. So settle in and, um, as Em would say, play the music.
M. Rossiano and Michael Lucas. This is M. Salation. Wait, do it? Do you, Oprah? Okay. She is yeah. the mother mm-hmm. I never had. She is the sister anyone would want. She is the friend everyone deserves. I don't know a better person. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know a better person. <laughs> And then as Barbara, Barbara goes, why are you crying? And she's like, shoot. That's what happens. (laughs) I have watched it a few times. I love an Oprah quote. Oh, you do. And I'm hoping, uh, let me tell you, I hope in this interview there is a time where I can say, who is having that conversation? (laughs) Well, we're in. We're in. You've done the intro. I haven't heard it You're already, look at you, you're clutching your thing. You're already taking control. No, not at all. I just... There will be a lot of new people listening this week and this isn't normally how we do it. That's right. Yes. Normally I would do the intro and we'd be talking about, you know, for instance, J-Lo and Ben getting matching tattoos. Yeah, or whatever celebrity-related celebrity penis content. Correct. This could be an entirely penis-free episode, although now it's not because no, I've not. just said it. Thank God. Mm. But as a lot of you know, I've had, I've had a, quite a few days and I just couldn't get myself up to perform. That's right. Basically it. That's right. Mm. And if you have been uh, on social media of late, you probably have more than an inkling about what this is about. But as I mentioned in the introduction, it all began with a very, very innocent and quite lovely, and I didn't even think anything of it post, where you were had found out that at Marvel Stadium... Um, particularly for the Harry Styles concert, or maybe for all concerts now, they offer uh, a sensory room mm. if, if you know, if you need to slip away, mm. if you're neurodivergent and you need a quiet space uh, to recalibrate, then that's on offer for you. And you did a really simple post praising them for mm. that. I just want to, I've just found out something Jem, my EA right-hand woman, has made me aware of. I'm going to see Harry Styles at Marvel Stadium in a week. And as you can imagine, live shows, sensory issues, autistic person is pretty stressful. But Marvel have a sensory room with beanbags and noise cancelling headphones. And this is, I didn't know if any of you knew because I didn't know. And just well done, Marvel. This is amazing and inclusive. And I feel so much less anxious about this live show because I'm taking the girls and all their friends. And I'm taking Michael Lucas. I'm the designated adult. But there's a whole area I can go to when it's too much. Look. Thank you. This is great. And then for some reason, well, no, we know why. It was picked up on in the press and the headline was something like, Autistic M. Rossiano thinks she might need sensory room to get through Harry Styles' concert, mm-hmm. which was <sighs> framed in a way to make it look weak. It sort of felt like a bit of a dog whistle to me, like to invite people to sort of question and, I don't know, deliberately framing it in a way, yeah, that made it seem kind of like an attention-seeking thing or a pathetic thing. Anyway, needless to say, people took the bait. Yes. One high-profile person in particular, and we're not going to make this about her because she's obviously in a pretty bad place and I'm not interested in another pylon on another woman, but she added fuel to the fire in a few pretty vitriolic posts basically accusing me of lying about my autism diagnosis. And implying that you have this, uh, you know, beautiful, fantastic, privileged, silky smooth life Mm. and that this is, it's almost like your autism diagnosis is a trendy, it's like a handbag that you've picked up that you're showing off on social media. That was the sort of accusation. But enough of that. Mm. 
Oh, well, I, I think that we should just start with firstly uh, the diagnosis itself. Yes. So I'm going to be in the position of asking all the stupid questions. It's not stupid. <laughs> no, well, some of them will be. <laughs> so let's come back on that one. We haven't spoken about this because I'm actually building a bit of a doco podcast around this very topic. And this podcast is separate to that, to my neurodivergence. This is our podcast to talk about politics and, you know, political issues and penises, as, as mentioned previously. But this has infiltrated my life so much and I have become pop culture this mm. week. So I'm still going to make that other podcast, but that's the reason you and I haven't addressed my autism diagnosis mm. directly on this one. Mm. So, yeah. There I, are big groundbreaking plans for <laughs> uh, There are. Yes. There really are. Yes. Don't worry. So when you did your historic, widely viewed, sensational National Press Club address mm. about being diagnosed uh, later in life, that sounds the wrong phrase, doesn't it? I being was. diagnosed as, well, yes, mm. with ADHD. At that time... You weren't actually yet formally diagnosed with autism. However, you strongly suspected that you were. Yes, definitely. So, so what in particular led to you pursuing, like going and seeking a formal diagnosis? I had gone through Elio, my son's diagnostic process, and we had a fairly progressive psychologist and paediatrician and speech therapist and occupational therapist. And so they were across the way females present with autism also. Mm -hmm. And when we were going through the questions for him and when we were talking about, you know, how it presents, and I was just really curious during the process and we started talking about the male and female presentation, mm. I heard myself described almost perfectly. Mm. And up until that point, autism to me was, you know, Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Oh, I know. And really the only way we ever see autism portrayed in media is that extreme male presentation of ritual behaviours and hand flapping and, um, you know, really rigid the way they speak and act and that is all I knew. So when I started actually learning the way females present and certainly Elio isn't in the stereotypical male presentation either, mm. it really hit home that I needed to get myself formally assessed. Mm. But I didn't do it for a few months because... I still felt strange about it. It still felt mm -hmm. like maybe I was being dramatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then in the end, I needed to get the diagnosis so that I stopped, I guess, medically gaslighting myself. Mm -hmm. When symptoms did arise, I would say, no, you're being in my mind. No, you're being too dramatic. You just have to cop it. Just go and be in a quiet room for a minute. Don't cry. Don't cry. And all these times you're a bad person, you're just actually the worst person. And all this time I knew that if, because I am a rule person ironically, and if someone tells me something, it gets set in place. If someone with experience and a professional said to me, you are autistic, mm -hmm. I knew that I would be easier on myself because I had the bit of paper, I had the rule. Yes. So that's why I sought the diagnosis. And when you say when symptoms arise in particular, what, what particular ones for you are the ones that were? Look, my... <laughs> My whole life has been me playing a part and studying other people and enduring things I thought everybody endured. I didn't realise that people automatically know how much eye contact to make or not mm. to make in social situations. I didn't know that people kind of played a role in a conversation and monitor, I monitor myself. I look down upon myself and self-monitor every time I'm in a conversation with someone 
and then I walk away feeling exhausted and not really having taken in what that person has said. I didn't know everyone didn't do that. Mm. So for me, my symptoms actually come and go. There are some, sometimes when I've got all my resilience and all my spoons, as we call it, where I can go into loud areas and I can have a conversation with someone I don't know and give eye contact. But when I am low on spoons or when I have sensory overload, I have no resilience in the, and everything is loud and scratchy and bright and upsetting and exhausting. So I guess for me, I was finding just getting out of bed and being able to come to work and function as an adult, I guess that that was getting harder and harder as I became aware that perhaps it was autism. I've already forgotten why I'm answering this question. What did you <laughs> No, ask? I said what were the particular, when you said when you were feeling these things and you need to take a step back, what were the particular things? Oh. So, yeah, no, you've described it personally. And when you say spoons, you mean like the amount of different spoons that you can carry holding different things. Yeah. And is it fair to say that at some points you seem to have, like is it a day-by-day day day thing or it changes? Spoons are daily for me. So you might wake up and you've got, a, like on a good day you've got a lot of spoons, you can cope with a lot of different things at once on a bad day. Mm. And is that related to um, exhaustion and yeah. stuff like that as well? The main problem and the main issue I face is sensory overload, mm. which then causes burnout. And Ironically for a maximalist power queen. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe. So oftentimes, you know, the day after we record and edit the podcast, I'm exhausted and I mm. find it really hard to function. And if mm. I have a live show on, it will take me three or four days to recover from being on stage. And I didn't know that wasn't the same for everybody else. Mm. When I get off stage, I can never go out and party with the band and the backstage crew. I have to lay down very quiet. You've seen me. I, oh, yeah, I party longer after your shows than yeah, you do. <laughs> I have to go back and find some more spoons, I mm. guess. But, I mean, if we want to talk about, and we need to get into it because everyone wants to know, the diagnostic process in itself was one where I sat down with a woman who has worked in this field for 25 years. Her specialty is diagnosing mm. women and girls with ADHD and autism. And initially I met with a male psychiatrist who completely disregarded the, the the even entertaining the idea that I was autistic. Really? And he listed why. Because you don't have ritualistic behaviour, you don't talk in monotone, you don't have any obvious stims, you don't flap your... And you I do sat, have ritualistic behaviour though. Exactly, but my ritualistic behaviour is acceptable for women because we find a way to mask even our symptoms. Mm. I was... My special my specialty topic isn't dinosaurs or trains. It's fantasy. Mm, mm. It's, I was deeply obsessed with fantasy, with never-ending story, with mm. Star Wars. That was my specialty topic, but mm. that is kind of acceptable for girls. And my stimming was hair twirling and humming and mm. rocking and, you know, doing things with my hands, which are all kind of cutesy girl behaviour. Mm. So nobody saw that as an issue. Mm. But now with all the knowledge we know, they were my stims. And that comes down to basically there's just more pressure in general on women to conform to a particular mode of behaviour in particular. So bas so it's kind of like men like were almost happier to go off and let them be weird or something like that or let them perform and let them act in ways that are divergent. But women, is that right? And so women yeah. learn early on yeah. conform, like, like be, you, you, there's more pressure on you to be what people expect you to be. And well, so you learn how to mimic it. Yeah, we're told very, very early the most important thing is to be good and to be liked. Mm. Boys are encouraged to be brave and 
and go for things and be bold and loud, whereas mm. girls are told be a good girl, you know, mm, behave mm, yourself. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing is to be popular. And the female presentation of, you know, autism is characterised by assimilating and masking and camouflaging. And that's, the, we, we develop coping strategies and we mask. That is the first sign that your daughter or, you know, a, a female presenting person is probably on the spectrum. So is it more nurture than nature? Like are there actual gender differences between the way autism manifests itself just naturally or is it just because there's different societal pressure or no one really ever knows? I think it's a bit of both. Mm -hmm. I don't know enough about the science because ironically there has been not enough (laughs) science done in the field of female presentation Mm. of autism. And then another step again obviously is gender non-binary, non-conforming, gender fluid community almost zero research Mm -hmm. on how autism presents itself early in that community. Mm. So for every three boys that are diagnosed with autism, there's one girl, Yeah, which is a real problem Mm. because women and girls who go undiagnosed, it it leaves many years of feeling isolated and misunderstood and you just simply do not understand the struggles that you have. Mm. And because we're diagnosed later, we miss out on early intervention. Mm -hmm. We miss out on learning ways that would possibly make our adult lives more bearable and more functioning. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole snowball effect and there's a whole generation of women like me Mm. who are realising because of the internet, because people are speaking out, because there's new diagnostic requirements. Because they're watching their kids be diagnosed. And that is the main Mm. area of women realising that they are neurodivergent. Mm. And I was talking to my paediatrician, Elio's paediatrician, and he said it is heartbreaking for him when he's going through the assessments, he watches the parent have the light bulb moment Mm. and they say to him, what? What do I do? And he has nowhere to send them. Mm-hmm. He has no way to help the parent then mm. go off and get their own diagnosis. Mm. And it's just a real huge problem. And I was that parent. Yeah. I suddenly realised, shit. So I went to see this male psychiatrist and he was so dismissive. Mm. And I was so sure that I was that I just kept searching. Yeah. Until I, I found someone who I studied and researched and did my homework on and I knew that she worked in the field and I stalked her and harassed her. Hyperfixation. And luckily she is an emsolator. Oh, what a coup. And um, she very generously squeezed me in on her day off because mm-hmm. she's completely booked out, books are closed, no new clients. Mm-hmm. And we went through the diagnostic process. And what is that process? Like what 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 do you have to do? So I had to... I had to have a sessions with her where we discussed my background, how I experienced school, mm-hmm. how I experienced social situations. Um, and basically there's a criteria you have to meet. And I was, there's a score, 56 was the cutoff and I was 76. Mm. And part of the diagnostic process was also interviewing family and friends Yes. Um, which you were one of. I was. I got a little email. Yeah. M being M did not, had forgotten to tell me that I was going to get it. And all of a sudden I got a questionnaire on M. But the weird thing for me was when I got that questionnaire, um, I thought it was a specifically tailored test for M because they were describing her so closely <laughs> because all of the things that were there, like there was a, it was just a lot about how she socialises and, um, 
I mean, how the person socialises. Yes, I know it wasn't specific to him, but it was things like, you know, is eye contact an issue in social situations? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's weird because I've always known that, but I mean, I guess you just sort of, I never thought autism. I just thought, I just thought she's weird in social situations. <laughs> just get her one-on-one. Yeah. And I think for me also, I went down the route of trying to be perfect at everything and I really did achieve you know, in areas that I knew I was good at and I went hard and I struggled so much socially that I knew that if I was really good at sport, Mm. people would like me. Because in Australia and Australians, you learn very early. Mm. They love sport, Mm. as you talked about. (laughs) But you at least had the capacity to achieve. And I I did. did Yes. I I made my first state team when I was 10 years old. Mm. I got second at the national championships when I was 10 years old. I... I did gymnastics, netball, basketball, soccer, aths, dancing, all of them at the same time and was in all the top levels of that. I just made myself sick. I broke my little body trying to make myself good at something that would balance out how bad I was in social situations. Oh, well, there was a, also a brutal, I remember that brutal um, comment that was, I think it was meant to be said with affection, that was, M, she's always good at everything that doesn't matter. Yeah. That like, was... so if you need maths and mm. English and all that sort of stuff, forget it. But, uh, yeah, sport, music, mm. drama, art. Mm. And then, of course, you segued from your athletic career straight into singing and and, and ended up in the top ten of Australian Idol. So, yeah. wild. Yeah. And so th- the main things for me and the main things for girls when assessing them for autism is a complete lack of understanding of social norms. I have no ability and had no ability to to naturally, instinctively be able to partake in neurotypical back and forth. Mm. So inability to make small talk, yes. Inability to joke. <laughs> well, no, ironic, no, that's an ironic thing to say. To, no, inability to understand when I'm being sarcastic, particularly if it's in text form. Oh, totally. Like literal, I'm taking literal, everything literally. And I'm a literal person and I'm also, I have this real justice complex in that it's right or wrong. And the reason this week affected me so much and I was unable to function for a couple of days and I was so low was because what this person said about me was wrong. Mm. And I have this report here that I have the proof Mm. and I had no way of getting to every person that maybe believed what she was saying and saying, no, no, Mm. you know, and this is why I so fiercely go in as an ally for marginalised communities because I have that real sense of right and wrong. Mm. Answering bluntly, yes. Not reading the room and and info dumping on your special interest topic. <laughs> Some of us find that charming. And I have to yes. say, being able to verbally download all the facts I have on a topic I love is like taking a brain shit. It is so amazing. It's like yeah. my brain is squeezing out the most satisfying turd of information it has had backed up and been constipated with. And finally, I've seen an opening and I do not read the room. I just go in. What a beautiful metaphor. Thank you. <laughs> I interrupt conversations all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I jump in mm-hmm. and I, I find it really hard to initiate conversations with people. Mm. I really, and that's part of the small talk thing. I'm, I really struggle to, so how, how are you? Have a kids? Mm. What's, I cannot do that. Lack of eye contact. I cannot work out people's body language or facial expressions. I self-monitor and I, and I mimic neurotypical sometimes and that's why I've become such a good performer and a good mimic 
because I've spent my life studying humans. Yeah. I study patterns. Mm. I've always been obsessed with patterns. I remember as a kid I would look at number plates and try and match up letters on all of them and see how many I could find or I would, when I lay awake at night, I, I follow the filigree on the ceiling and I've always, you know, I look for patterns in people and that's why I like to predict the future because, and that's why I'm really good at predicting mm. the future because I follow patterns. Mm-hmm. And I also just want to say when she talks about these things in group situations and everything, it's not like it's just a in my experience, a little subtle thing with eye contact or anything like that. It's more like I've spent, you know, decades watching him in group situations and it's noticeably something's off, even to a to a to a lay person. And it does it's hard, like before we understood this diagnosis, it's hard. It's like, what, she can get on fucking stage and do a show, a monologue off the top of her head to thousands of people and yet you're standing here with four people and you can't look at them, you can't engage properly, you can't pick up what people are putting down, you're injecting weird things. It just sort of felt weird in a really noticeable way. It wasn't just like a, a tiny little fl- fleck of awkwardness or anything like that. It was much more noticeable and severe than that. And it would be hard for people to understand if, you know, all they saw of you was, for example, you know, Instagram and on stage and everything like that. It's funny you say that, though, because so many people have reached out, autistic people and diagnostic people, and mm. said... I've always I knew, known. yeah. Like quite a few people have said, I knew in Perth when you were on radio. Mm. I saw you at a live gig and I saw the way that you were stimming on stage. You rock when you sing. Mm. You, you have ritualistic behaviour that I recognised. So it's only neurotypical people that seem to have a problem with my diagnosis mm. because I don't meet their expectations of an autistic person, so therefore I mustn't be. Well, I mean, yeah, if you're not babbling incoherently in the airport saying you need to fly Qantas, then that that is basically what I would imagine of an autistic person up until these past few years. Yeah, and I I think for me I've always found it hard to make friends. I mean, I'm still friends with the person I was friends with when I was 11. He sits opposite me and I find it really hard to maintain friendships. Mm. I, I've, I've found a circle of friends that are pretty similar to me and or know me and don't hold it against me. <laughs> but it would also be interesting to see post-diagnosis as well that's really helpful because now in group situations you do... You often like open yeah. with I'm autistic. I'm just going to go deeper in it, and actually, that's way better than yeah. than someone sitting there going something's a bit off about this conversation. Mm. And I think spending your lives always on the fringes of the social group, as a girl especially, it just sets you up for the rest of your life of feeling othered. And mm. I think my biggest fear, as we've talked about revealing this diagnosis, is what actually happened to me this week. Mm. And yeah, it's been devastating. <laughs> and and actually, I, M's not the only person recently in my life and my family that has been diagnosed. And it, there has been a similar thing, people doubting. People doubting and saying that uh, you're doing it for attention or some sort of crutch or something like that, mm. which is only compounding, you know. I mean, it's like, the, it's like the masking has been so exhausting but so successful that people can't. And so let's talk about high functioning as well and why that's such a difficult term because that is also part of the reason why people resist accepting it, some people. The autistic community have been fighting to have high functioning and low functioning removed from mm. everyone's vocabulary for years, mm. I've learned. Mm. It was coined in the late 80s by a couple of researchers. It's not an official diagnostic term. Mm. It's a really problematic term mm. because when we're discussing, and in quotation marks, high-functioning autistic people. Mm. Basically, you're saying they don't have an intellectual disability. That's the kind of the that's mm. the line in the sand. Yeah, they they seemingly have a an, an high IQ, 
and they they seemingly are able to function pretty normally compared to neurotypicals. And then you've got people who they refer to as low functioning who do have an intellectual disability. Mm. And the reason these terms are problematic is because, first of all, with the high functioning community, which I would be considered, mm. uh, it doesn't take into account the other struggles that we have in our life. Mm. And it's also minimizing the lived experience of an autistic person and you're reducing them to perhaps their IQ that mm, perhaps mm. because someone is really good at maths and science or perhaps someone is really good with, you know, verbally as I am, that their other parts of their life must also be fine mm. because that one specific part is fine. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that's not the case. Mm. Often autistic people who are, and I'm saying it, and every time I say it, I cringe, high functioning they do struggle in other aspects of their life, mm. being able to get themselves dressed, being able to have a shower, being able to turn up to things on time, being able to take notes in class. And often people who are high IQ miss out on vital funding and early intervention because government bodies use that unofficially to determine who gets NDIS funding. Mm. Level one autistic people don't get funding in any way. There mm-hmm. is no early intervention funding but ironically, if you intervened early with people who are level one, they would have quite a normal life. Yeah. So Elio is going to have Elio's a really different. He's level two. Level two. Yeah. And Elio is borderline one and two. Mm. But we are able to go to the occupational therapist with Elio. We're able to do the therapies with him so that he learns, you know, how to how to be and how to regulate his emotions and stuff that other people take for granted. But if he had been class level one, he would have missed out on all of that. Mm. So I think, you know, the term high functioning is so dangerous on so many different levels. And even the term low functioning, just because someone is nonverbal doesn't mean they're not able to have thoughts and feelings. They just communicate it differently. Mm. So I think we need to stop, please stop referring to me as high functioning mm. because what I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I found a way to function, mm. but I wouldn't say that I'm vibrating on a high frequency all of the time. Nor would I. Obviously, that's very problematic and not a constructive term at all. But also calling out and doubting people publicly. I mean, that it kind of sends a message, it, warding people off getting diagnosed and getting help in the first place. So that fear of being questioned or being, like essentially it's being saying you're a liar and a detention seeker. Mm. And, I mean, it's hardly surprising that that feels catastrophic. I mean, firstly, it's ridiculous to think that someone would, like, what are you hoping to achieve? Like, let's just for one second say, why on earth would someone, like, say that they're autistic when they're not? It's, it's, it's like, what, what, what's the, it's ridiculous. But the reason why you are public with it is because, you know, you want to reach people out there like you or like Elio and start to change things and start to, start to, because while, as long as we're all wandering around with this like definition of autism that basically comes from something similar to Raymond, then there's so many people that are going to be missed and they're going to have their lives unnecessarily really difficult. And so in actual fact, it's really important for people who present like you to be public about it. Like you, for people who you might not pick it up if you see me on Instagram or on television or anything like that. But in some ways, that's why it's, it's critical that someone like you talks about it in a really open way and mm. devastating if someone doubts it. Mm. Yeah. I, I also now feel like 
you know, people are going to be watching me and if I do something that's not in their checklist of autistic behaviours, then that's a mark against me and I, I feel like I, I, I'm, I'm, it's lose-lose. I, I don't want to go to the concert on Friday night. I really don't. I don't, like. Why? Because you feel like people will be looking at you. And then it's like if you stay in your seat, then people there'll be this firestorm of question. Or if you leave, there'll be this like you can't win. Yeah. And the insinuation that I pick and choose my neurodivergence, mm. I, I genuinely don't. But I just, I also resent having to justify it and having to sit here with my report in my hands. And but then I think about my son, as I said in the speech. I think about my daughter and I think about all the women that have contacted me and that's more important than my hurt feelings and I'll be okay and I'll, you know, I, I'll, we all know I'll turn this into a show and be doing stand-up about it in a year but representation matters and so I have to be the example of autistic women like me who have become experts at masking, who know, like, we're not competent, we're coping. All my competence that you see are coping mechanisms. That's it. It's me performing. Imagine performing all of the time, how exhausting that is. And anyone listening now who is autistic knows what I mean. You pretend all day, you study, you try and be neurotypical, you try and fit into something that's set up for other people, and then you go home and you drop the mask and you're fucked, and then your family cop it. My family have copped so much of me dropping my mask when I get home. Even though, obviously, this has been beyond shitful this whole week. Having said that, being questioned and doubted is really, unfortunately, part of what happens. And even though it's really intensely shit on a personal level for you, in some ways, if there is any kind of benefit out of this week, I know a lot of people with an autism diagnosis are going to encounter what it's like to be questioned. You've had to have a cop it on a massive, massive public scale. But I do think, and you can even see in the comments on everything you write, I do think it has been kind of amazing to see someone, <laughs> I mean, terrible for you, but you've had to endure it and stand your ground and talk more and also bring this whole issue out of just how destructive it is to tell someone that their diagnosis isn't real or they're doing something for attention. So I do think that speaking in the way that you have is enormously beneficial in its own way. In fact, it's, you know, you didn't want to, you didn't ask, you didn't ask for this. My God, you really didn't ask for this. No. But I can, you can just see from how many people have flocked to add their voice of support, how meaningful it is. And and then on other levels, on micro levels in families or whatever, this happens all the time. So... If only people draw out of it is really, if you, if you, you know, if you're hearing that someone has an autism diagnosis and you're surprised or you're, and you feel an instinct to question it, just, I think seeing everything that's played out this week and how you responded to it in a good way is going to make people check themselves mm. and, and, and see how destructive that is. And hopefully it'll also, you know, again, help more people come to understand themselves better and and take steps that are going to make their lives much, much easier and the lives of everyone around them much mm. easier because that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. I hope, yeah, I, thank you to everyone who did reach out. I think this is going to whack me for a bit um, because I've been gaslighting myself into thinking, you know, this diagnosis 
can't be real because I have a distorted. That's why when I saw Chloe Hayden's portrayal of Quinny on Heartbreak High, that's why that hit me so hard because it re it reaffirmed. Oh no no yeah, mm. <laughs> that's why. I know so many women have seen me this week and gone, oh, no, yeah, it's okay. Well, I- and that's something that no doubt not on this particular way, but she is another person that would have encountered this sort of thing because she people did. look at her yeah. and say, my God, you're, you know, you're so socially capable and intelligent mm. and everything, yeah, that's you're high-functioning in quotes. And ironically, that's the first symptom of a female autistic mm. presentation, mm. being able to perform yeah. like that. Mm. Thanks, everyone. Um, this is about all, as much as I can endure. I didn't want to do anything, but I realised I had to. We'll be back to regular programming next week. Um, there'll be oh, a Harry Styles concert review down. from they somebody. really will. <laughs> Don't know. Oh, Chella and I, yeah. if ever there was a topic that yeah. we can stand in and take it, <laughs> we will carry that load of breaking down Harry Styles for you. He's thank- in the country. We can't wait. No, uh, he is. Not yeah. all of us. Oh, well, it's okay. Uh, thank you for being my friend this week. I didn't get to say, who is having that conversation? But there we go. I just did it. Or my other favourite is when she goes, what? (laughs) There you go. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Okay. M. Rossiano and Michael Lucas. This is M. Salation. All right. Well, I've gone away and I've gathered. Hey, if this is your first experience of M. Salation, it's normally quite different, as we said at the top, but I really felt like it would have been strange to not address what's been going on this week and also to honour, oh, God, not masking and not for once in my life putting on a brave face, the lipstick, the lashes, the nails and pretending that I'm not completely crumbling on the inside. So I think if that's what I'm encouraging all of you to do, then I needed to honour that and, you know, walk the walk. If you've heard any of this and you're thinking perhaps that's me, I encourage you to research it. And there's also nothing wrong with self-identifying. If you can't get in for assessment because it's nearly impossible at the moment, go do the research, find the criteria Ask your friends and family. You can self-diagnose. It's not official. You can't apply for funding. You, know, you don't have the report. And hopefully eventually you can get one if you need one. But if you're hearing me speak about the way it presents for me and it rings true for you or perhaps your child, then you can start making changes. You can start self-advocating. But I think, you know, when I was going through my report again, which I now feel like I need to carry around (laughs) just on my person to pull out. You know, the main thing that it said, and this is the, this is the like conclusion of the report, is as a result of the assessment process, it was concluded that M does present as an individual with autism spectrum disorder and at a severity level requiring support, level one. M met the criteria for autism spectrum disorder on the DSM-5 and scored in the range indicative of ASD in the adult GQASC. It is my opinion that M will likely benefit from psychology where she can be supported to process the diagnosis as well as any grief that may follow as she reflects on past hurts and misunderstandings from others. 
It may also benefit from psychological support to manage the common comorbid conditions related to autism, such as anxiety, autistic burnout and depression. Occupational therapy may help with sensory difficulties. When I read that, it was, again, that devastating grief of holy shit, reassessing who I am at my core, going back over every social interaction, every workplace I've had difficulty in because I struggled in every job I had because I was blunt, because I was black and white, because I was literal, because I was impatient, not to mention how my ADHD is in constant battle with my autism. They hate each other. They are cat and dog. They are light and dark, good and evil, and it swaps which one's good and which one's evil. So on top of that, I am someone who thrives in chaos and looking for dopamine and exciting times, but I also need structure and routine and rules. And so that adds to the exhaustion of my brain. Anyway, I am making some things for my community, for the neurotypical community. I didn't want to talk about it in depth until... I was able to present them to you, but my hand was kind of forced this week. But I am developing a stage show and I am developing a podcast and I'm putting everything I have into it, all the money I can muster, all the time, all my heart and soul because it's so important to me that there isn't another 10-year-old M, that there isn't another 40-year-old M contemplating, you know, everything and being exhausted all the time and feeling isolated and alone and misunderstood and like they're an awful person when in fact they're autistic, they're neurodivergent and that's okay. And you know what? A lot of my success is because I am autistic, not in spite of it. And I want you to show me as an example to your daughters, for yourself, it's not limiting, it can be, But the whole notion that people said I couldn't be autistic because I'm successful is fucking ableist and awful. Anyway, thank you so much for allowing me the space to download everything. It's been pretty soul-destroying. But you know me. (laughs) I will bounce back and it will be penises as usual next week. Uh, If you're new here, please go and listen to lots of other episodes. Support me, support this podcast. We want to make it as big as possible. I love doing it so much. I've been able to create my own workplace with my own team and we work at neurodivergent friendly hours and pace and I've been able to create the kind of environment I always needed and wanted. Thanks again, everybody, and uh, we'll chat next week. Bye. Emsolation with M. Rossiano is a Spotify exclusive podcast recorded at Down the Hill Studios, hosted by M. Rossiano with Michael Lucas and sometimes her eldest daughter, Marcella. Executive produced by Benjamin Wosley, produced by M. Rossiano, edited by Ezekiel Fenn, with videos by James Henderson, socials by Marcella Rossiano Barrow, with assistance from Jem Evans, plus cameos from M's dad, Vincey. 
Get the full Emsolation experience by following us on Instagram at Emsolation Podcast. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. Join other Emsolators at the Emsolation Group on Facebook. The answer is Harry Styles. If you really want to help us out, you could become a patron of Emsolation. Share this podcast with a friend. Give us a five-star rating and make sure you're following us on the Spotify app by actually hitting the follow button. As always, thanks for listening. And we're excited to chat with you again soon. Soon.